So I thought for Christmas. Right? It is Christmas. It is Christmas. We'll pick 12 subjects mm -hmm. that we're excited about for 2018. Uh, and like we can quiz each other about them in okay. two minutes. My subject for the two minutes is background fetch. Oh, background fetch. Didn't we have that before? No. What was it? We had the thing that we had before. Oh, we, you're thinking of background sync, right? Background sync, service worker event that would happen uh, next time you had connectivity. Okay. And you could do sort of whatever you wanted there. Okay. It's not that. What is background fetch? Now that's that's a very open-ended question, <laughs> which you could have said. <laughs> what is the use case for background fetch? Right. So think about a long download that's going to you know maybe take videos. A video. Yeah. Good one. Okay. Right. Uh, and that could take. You know, hours, days. We don't want the browser to be like <laughs> it could take days. Remember, I mean, videos get big. Mobile data is slow. Uh, you could be offline for a while, and we don't want the the uh, the mobile to the browser to have to be awake for that whole thing. Okay, so basically, it would be outsourcing the the fetch thing to the operating system rather than yes on desktop though as well. Yes, is the plan, but it, probably mobile first. Yes, because but also desktop that makes more sense. Okay. So yeah. we, we ha do we have an origin trial or something? There's, there's something in Canary now. OK, It's cool. pretty good. Uh, and it means we, we don't actually need uh, user permission to do this, because you can already start downloads without user permission. That's true. Uh, the idea is to make sure it's fully visible mm -hmm. all the time, uh, so you can see like the progress of the download. You can give it an icon, give it a title, so the user's aware that it's happening. They can cancel it if they okay. want. OK. But get, like, do I, can I put like a 20 gig video into Cache API now? Uh, yes. If you have persistent data, you have uh, as much space as you can eat. Right? You, need to, you need to ask for that. That does require permission. OK. Um, that's a lot of data. That is a lot of data. But people like movies, right? And you don't want, <laughs> you don't want them disappearing just as you're Citation getting on a flight. Right? <laughs> people do like movies. Look, there's loads of them. People, people, we build big buildings where we show them. Have okay. you ever seen these? So we have in Canary. Any other browser signals? Uh, positive signals from a couple of browsers, uh, but it's just Chrome for now, and that'll be 2018. That was two minutes. That was spot on. OK. So something that I'm excited about is animation worklet. Animation worklet. OK. Now, what's a worklet? Worklet is like a worker, like a potentially off-thread thing. Yes. But it's more like weight and something that we can easily and cheaply instantiate. Oh, like a piglet is a smaller pig. Yes. Uh, a worklet is a smaller worker. Right, OK, I understand. Now, an animation, what's that? Actually, I know. But what, what <laughs> is an, what, how does that fit inside a worklet? So you know how you end, sometimes you end up like doing JavaScript in a raft just to make complex animations or have something stick to your finger, like drag and drop things with like transforms? Like on, on native, where you scroll a thing, a header sort of goes up, something exactly. changes size. These kind right? of things. Those would go in a worklet, because the worklet would be called on every frame. Worklets can't access DOM. No. But we have like special thingies like proxy elements, so you can still transform them at, like with the fast GPU Ooh. operations, like transform opacity, but only those things. Oh, because okay, so it's just the things that can be composited. Exactly. It basically runs ah. on the compositor. Technically, that's not true, but might as well think about it that way. So you can manipulate where things appear on screen. It's really fast, and you can do really fancy, fancy things. Okay. So what can I do that in response to? You can do it in response to time, because that's how animations work. But that also is true. In response to scroll. So it can have frame-perfect oh. scroll-linked effects. 
So um, you could do things like uh, a Heidi bar that disappears, or a header that grows when you scroll down, or like so a, an object it rotates when you scroll down. So, this, so, you, so you're getting the scroll position in, and you yeah. you have access to a series of elements or and something, yeah, and you can just do do what you want with them. Yeah. Okay. And then with time, you just give it like a I I, I want to do an animation for twenty seconds. And you just get the frame yeah, callbacks. It's, it's very around. similar to the Web Animations API, where you define timelines and keyframes on these timelines. And then you can basically say, on this time, I want to be at this point, depending on where you are on the scroll timeline or the actual time, 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 line, 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 time line, 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 line. Animations. Animations. Bang on. <laughs> I want to talk about the WebLocks API. Go. Is that like Warlocks? No. So. It's like lo like mutex locks and stuff. Yes, what correct? What what is what? How? Right. Okay. So the idea is in a, a page or in a worker, mm -hmm. you would say, "I want a lock named the," and you can give it a name, any okay. name you want. It's just a string. Okay. Right. And then it will wait until nothing else has a lock of that name open. Mm -hmm. And then uh, once it's open, you get a callback, uh, and you'd usually use an async function here because yeah. it's expected to return a promise. And you like uh, you know return the promise, resolve the promise, like return from the async function. Yeah. Once you have done the work uh, that you are wanting to lock for. Okay. And so that lock is shared across the origin, I would presume. Yes, the whole origin. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, we we have locks on shared array buffers, right? Uh, we have oh atomic the, the atomic things which right. you can wait and lock. Yeah. Basically, you can build a lock. Uh, yes, but you cannot wait on the main thread with an atomic. True. You can only wait in a worker. Whereas with this, this is an asynchronous thing. Ooh. So it can work on a page as well. And it also lets you do shared locks. Right? So, okay. right, so in, in a shared mode, you can, you can say, like, I want a lock on this, but I'm prepared to share with other shared things. Okay. But then when a non-shared thing comes along for the same name, it has to wait for all of the shared things to finish. So this and is like the, an exclusive like lock. read-write new text where lots of people can read, but only one person can write. Like read and write stuff. And it means like sense. you can kind of do some of this similar stuff with like local storage or with yeah. like, but it, like it, you run into problems if a tab crashes or if it closes before it can ah, the free its lock. Whereas this will all happen because it's automatically level. Browser. Yeah, okay. So there you go. Yeah? Are you convinced? Is that signed off? Can we have it now? I, I'll think about it. OK, fair enough. I thought I would talk about architecture on the web. OK, two minutes. What is that? Architecture, that's buildings. It's nothing to do with the web, mate. You got confused. Well, the thing is that lots of other fields like enterprise engineering and gaming have like these architectural patterns when they build like really complex things. No, nope, fields don't have architecture. You're thinking of cities. Software architecture, software engineering, you, you, you come up with patterns to use to compose and combine things and to, you know, like separation of concerns, all these things. Mm -hmm. And the web hasn't really done that. I mean, you could have done, but developers mostly are like, here's a little app that I build, or they just throw things together and do most of the complex stuff in the back end. And I think it's time for the front end developers to have proper architecture in their front end code as well. But isn't this what like all of the frameworks have been doing forever? Exactly, but I think these these patterns should be exposed more to the developers themselves. So, for example, what I think that the web has an actor pattern where you have independent threads that are all running in a single threaded mode, but they communicate using post message. That's pretty much what we have on the web, and that is called an actor pattern. But these two things have barely been combined on the web, and I think there's more patterns like this out there. 
that haven't oh. been applied to the web to make your front-end architecture more manageable and nicer to work with. So what do we need to make this work, then? I think we already have everything that we need to make it work, but we haven't started using it. Like We just need to look for the patterns that game engineers use, that enterprise engineers use, and see if those are like useful for us on the web and try to build things using it and just experiment. So getting stuff like off the main thread except for the UI stuff is, is For example, that's one thing I want to look into. And then but how do you separate the concerns? What goes onto the off thread what stays on the main thread? And then how do you structure your code off thread as well? Because that's just one big bolt of logic still. How do you like compose those little bits and bobs? So and in 10 seconds, what should be on the main thread? UI work. Right. In six seconds, what shouldn't be on the main thread? Not UI work. That is correct. Well done. <laughs> I want to talk about weightless CSS. Weightless? That is one of the words I said. The other one is CSS. CSS. So CSS without weight. Yes, that is a good reversal <laughs> of, what, of what I said. What is weight? OK, so uh, when you write a CSS selector, it has specificity. That is correct. Yes, which if I, I could call weight if I didn't want to risk trying to pronounce specificity oh, again. Oh, so you mean specificityless CSS? Specificityless CSS is exactly. <laughs> Can you see now why I went for weightless CSS? Yes. So this is a, a, a proposal that was uh, agreed on in TPAC mm -hmm. uh, in uh, 2017. In 2017, uh, and Leah was telling me about it. And and the idea is they, they haven't settled on a name yet, but it would be something like uh, it is in the same way that you oh, would use like, like colon is and then a function. Yes, okay. exactly that. And inside you could put like a, a, a simple selector. Oh, like dots. Foo. So that would make a selector make match without increasing its specificity. Exactly that. So you'd be able to use all of the stuff that you can use outside is or, or whatever mm -hmm. it's called, but it would have like yeah Why? zero specificity. Because uh, this is this is the CSS working group's uh, attempt to uh, meet people halfway that don't enjoy the cascade so much. Oh, I see. Uh, so one of the things that you know complaints or the, one of the reasons they've seen people go to uh, CSS and JavaScript. Is that this whole just attach it to the element directly? Exactly, because then the, the mm -hmm. model's a lot simpler. So it's can they bring that to regular style sheets as an option, where just things will be done sequentially? Can I use um, child selectors in the is thing? I don't think so, because that was one of the long-standing things that people wanted to that they, if you contain a thing of that type, then style me the other way around or something. No, it would just be simple selectors, but no specificity. Space. We're out of time. Out of time. So my plan is the template proposal from Apple. Oh, Apple template proposal. The Apple template proposal. So what, what like what have they proposed? What, so we've already got templates, things like mustache uh, and like you know handlebars, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, also had like templating engines. In this case, we're talking about the template tag in HTML. That's already shipped. That is shipped. And it's there to so you can like clone and instantiate sub like partial DOM trees really, really efficiently. But otherwise I've never really used it. I just use it as a parser hack. Exactly. And that's right. kinda what they want to augment. They want to add the capabilities of adding bindings. Like we know from mustache. We say like at, in this particular position in the template, I would like to use this value from a variable. So how we already have sort of a template language on the web, because we've got JavaScript's yeah. template language. So what, what, what's the difference? The difference is that in this case, this would be 
baked very efficiently into the browser. It would basically do things like we talked about hyper-HTML and lit-HTML, do mm. these kind of things that it remember which bits are actually mutatable. And then you oh. can just update the instance by giving in a new state object, and it would like, rip out the values that it needs, puts them in the right positions, and you have an updated DOM fragment. Oh, so it is very much like yeah, uh, hyper-HTML, HTML on It seems to be very web. similar from, like, I don't know how the implementation would look like under the hood, but from the developer's perspective, it is very similar. But in this case, you could just write it in your HTML markup rather than to have to wire up a importer library and to use the HTML tag string template like, literal. literal. <laughs> Does, uh, so are other browsers interested in this? As far as I know, the reactions were fairly good to it. It was discussed at TPAC, yep. and the proposal is out on GitHub, and everything looked fairly promising. There's like some kinks that have to be you know, figured out. But other than that, it seems like browsers are very much interested. Sounds like a nice high-level thing to augment like web components and stuff. For example, yeah, Shadow DOM, all these little things can make good use of templates. And I think uh, it's going to be interesting in 2018. Good timing. Uh, flat map and flatten. What? Good question. Uh, these are methods that are going to go on arrays. Oh, this is like the, I think the array prototype hasn't been changed in a long, long time. So this would be the first new array prototype functions in a long time? Yeah, since we had things like uh, sum and find, find index. Oh, We've right. had a few new things. No, those are very new, yeah. Uh, but so what does flat map and, like what, flatten? What is flatten? OK, flatten, if you have an array of arrays, it will go through it and just turn it into one long array, as if each array is concatenated One together. level or will it recurse down? Aha, good question. One of the arguments is depth, which basically says how many times it will run that algorithm. Can I give infinite infinity as depth? That is a good question, of which I do not know the answer. <laughs> but that is, that is a fun thing to look up. Flat map. What does flat, flat map do? What does flat map do? Um, it's, you know map? I know map. So you, 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 take, you take an array, and you apply a function to every element. Yes. And it will always produce an array the same length of, yeah. of the array you operate on. It'll be mm -hmm. a new array, but you can like you know change every item for another item. Yeah. Uh, so you can change DOM nodes for strings or, or whatever. Um, whereas reduce always takes you down to so like one element is the idea, taking an array yeah. down to one element. Flat map lets you look at an item, and you return an array of items. Oh, so it's like map and then flatten. Exactly. Hence the name flat map. Flat map. Yes, you've spotted the two words in there that join together to form what this does. But it's something that I found that I've, I've needed quite a bit. Yeah, like, like I usually use reduced, where, where I like push to my accumulator value. And it kind of feels like a hack using oh, reduce. Oh, it's so annoying to write. Right, exactly. So it's a way to remove all of the annoyance, and you just get to you know create an, an array of arbitrary length from an array of arbitrary length by returning extra array items. And that's stage three in TC39. I'm really looking forward to that. We're getting good at this. Yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Async iterators and generators. OK. Now, I'm aware of iterators. Okay. I'm aware of generators. Exactly. What you've done there is put the word async in front of them. And right. you're trying and to pass it off it. as a I new thing. I think we're done. Is that, oh, excellent. Brilliant. No. OK. So um, yeah, so iterators are a, a type that you can use in for loops, for example, mm. in for off loops, where you have an iterator, and you just get like arrays or have an iterator. So you can iterate right. over the values. But you can create an iterator which is infinite as well. Right? For example. Yep. Yeah. OK. Then you have generators, which are the star functions with the yield keyword, where you can basically 
construct an iterator on the fly using a generator function. It's like, like a sort of helper method to, exactly. to create an iterator. Okay. And now, the, 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 sometimes the problem was you wanted to not only yield values, but you wanted to yield promises. And you wanted to kind of know that only the next value is available once the previous promise is done resolving to something. Right. OK. And that's where they came up with the concept of async iterators, which are the same thing, but they, in turn of, instead of returning values, they iterate over promises. OK, so if, I'm, if I've like fetched uh, three things, uh, I have a promise for each of those things, yeah. an async iterator, is that going to let me loop yeah, through you them? Yeah, you would iterate over them in order, and you would not be able to go to the second one until the first one had resolved and has been processed by you. Excellent. OK, so that's async iterators. What about async generators? I guess it, I mean, it's, it's going to be the helper function it's for creating It's the helper those. function, but in this case, you can yield promises. And it's going to be super helpful, exactly like you said, for fetches or in a service worker when you want to fetch your header, your main content in the footer, and right. you want to, you want these to be in order. Because if your footer comes before the header or the content, that wouldn't make sense. So you right. kind of want to yield those bits and bobs in order and then just stitch them together or just forward them to the main thread so the build the page can build up. So and I think it's going to be really, really useful once we have it in our JavaScript environment and just be able to work with asynchronous values. Like streams? <gasps> these things? Yes. Brilliant. Sold. I want to talk about the fetch observer. The fetch observer. Does it have to do with actual fetch? Yes, it does. Does it observe fetches? Yes, it does. How? Uh, magic. <laughs> through, like, through web specs that we have yet to write, <laughs> which I is part of, this is uh, uh, right now. It's just an API uh, kind of sketch of what this will okay. look like. But which problem does it solve? Uh, the problem of I want to observe fetches. How can I do that? Um, but what exactly do you want to observe? Because you can usually already know when it's done, right? Right. So it's mostly about all of the stuff that happens in between. Okay. So what happens in between? Um, well, things like uh, you know, it's connecting to the mm. server. It's connected. It's waiting for headers. Uh, it has okay. headers, and then things like uh, there'll be, there'll be uh, upload progress, okay, download progress. Oh, that's good. And like, and those two things can can happen at the same time, which I didn't know. You can be uploading while you're downloading. This will give you that piece of information, and it'll be like a separate object, so you can sort of you can pass that to like another piece of code, so they can observe the fetch without oh. any having any control over it. So could I? So I I do a fetch in my service worker, mm -hmm. like let's say a download for a bigger file, bigger asset. Can I? Take out the the observer, pass it to the main thread, and have the UI update kind of like. But that, that's one of the things that probably are going to happen. You want to download something in the service worker in the background, but have a UI that updates in real time and with the progress. That's exciting. That will probably be v2, um, <laughs> but it might be v2 that actually happens because it's a, it's a good use case. But you will also, if you're um, sending that to uh, the page, then you'll definitely be able to get it from the fetch observer from the page side. Okay. So and it's also where we can start adding extra bits of observation, mm -hmm. such as observing push, like H2 push. Oh, that's interesting because so far you don't know when something gets pushed. Nope. So the idea is we could have on this fetch observer an event that says like, oh, you've been given this. Do you want it? Uh, and that'll be your, you know you'll have a, a way to sort of consume it and bring that uh, through the network into a promise. I'm really excited about that. Cool. The import function. OK, it's, so, it's a function. Well, technically, no, but that's a different What? Thing. You've already lied to me in one of the words you I just said. I know. Okay. So we have static imports in JavaScript. Yes, we do, in, mod in modules specifically. In modules. So we say right. import okay. blah, blah, blah from blah, 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 and then you get a module, and you can use it. Yes. Great. But sometimes you don't want to do it at the start. 
Right, because right now all of your modules have to, all your imported modules have to download before any of them run. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes okay. you have something like a spinner that you want to use, but you don't really block the execution of your module on loading the spinner, which you're going to use much later or something. Okay, so you, you, this idea is this is something that you can defer the loading of. Exactly. So it, hang on, and you you would load a spinner this way. What are you going to display while that's loading? <gasps> OK, so maybe not spinners. Maybe not. OK, but like deferred roots or? All, yeah, or whatever kind of modules you want later on. If you a view that it's not, you don't need yet, and later okay. on, you need, then you can load it on demand. And that's where you have now a dynamic import, a little function that works the same as static import, but it's something that you can call in the middle of your code and returns a promise. Ah, OK. And then it resolves with what? What does it resolve with? With the module exports and a special name called default, which is the default, the export. default export. Yeah. Excellent. OK. So this is it, all of those hacks we currently use to load JavaScript dynamically. Which we'll just go away. They go away. And here's a fun fact. It's not a function. It's not a Why is it not a function? Because it's syntax. It's That's not a good reason. That's just a word. That's no, just another I, word. I actually don't know the exact reasoning, but I think they had it as a syntax, not a function, so you can't hack it. You can't overload it and hook your own function. It's supposed to be like a security mechanism, I think. Okay. But it's just an interesting fun fact on the side that really shouldn't affect you in your daily life as a developer at all. Excellent. So can I use this in regular JavaScript or just modules? Just modules, because oh. it is a module. So you need That just makes sense. But I mean, you can just use script type module, and then you have a module, and you can use dynamic import. So and all those hacks just go away. It's going to be a great. You're out of time. My subject is transform streams. Transform streams is we have readable stream and writable stream. Yes. What so is it? Re transform stream. Well, a readable stream, right, is a thing you can create, and like data comes out of it, right? You can read from it. it. You can read from it. You can see where the name comes from. Writable stream, right? You can write to it. Amazing. There's nothing. Nothing comes out. It's just a kind of like end point. Where does it go? Well, when you define the writable, you can get access to the stuff that, oh. that comes out of it. But, but you know, so generally, you define the other side with code. Yes. Okay. Whereas a transform stream, it's actually like the the object you get is pretty simple. It's just an object with a readable and a writable. So it's both. Yes. It's one object that has both on. And it, like the you have an object where dot readable is literally a readable stream dot writable, literally okay. a writable stream. And stuff goes into the writable and comes out the readable, usually changed in some way. And you can define how this change is happening? Yes. So there's a constructor for it, like a new transform stream. And you pass in uh, the sort of details of how to mm. do buffering and such. Okay. Uh, and then you have a function that receives chunks of data in, and you can push chunks so of data So basically, out. in the middle, Transforms the data exactly. Amazing, and, and this is like, but this is, this is a kind of huge thing for the web because it's what we can start defining a lot of platform le level features mm -hmm. on. Like, because there's, there's loads of stuff in the browser that we don't have access to, like uh, gzip. All browsers do it. I guess it, I guess it's a transform. Like you put in clear text, and out comes compressed. Well, it will probably be bytes. I meant, um, I meant clear text in the, you know, it's it's clear bytes and outcome compressed bytes. Oh, fine. OK, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but also things like uh, image compression, because like yeah. all browsers do this for Canvas. So, you know, what if we could push bytes in, get bytes out? RTC has video codecs, the same business. So this should expose all of that to the platform. That would be so good. 2018. Exciting. OK, go. Workers. I'm aware of them. They're existing. They have been existing for a long time. But yes. I think we need to start using them. 
Service workers. I've been using. I've been using them. What the service worker is not. Oh, so there's workers as a as a group, I guess. But I was talking about the web workers, the the way of the web to giving you actual parallelism, like oh, true so multi-threading. A dedicated worker. A dedicated worker for your site. Okay. And I think we should be looking at the native platforms like iOS and Android, and what they've been doing for doing for quite a long time is doing only. UI work on the main thread and putting everything else in a different thread. OK, right. And I, I mean, are we not doing that already? Some people are doing that already. I've done that. What I'm saying is I've done that already. <laughs> I've, I have done that already. There have been experiments, but I think it it's everything but mainstream. And I think it needs to become mainstream because for the couple, past couple of years, the problem has always been jank. People doing too right. much JavaScript on the main thread and doing animations wrong and whatnot. And if we could just move the expensive JavaScript code to a different thread and have some really good patterns on how to still interact with the, the UI part of your app, right. you would be free to just you know, write some blocking code, just do like some expensive JSON object serialization, and it wouldn't really affect the performance of your app. So a big part of the problem is, is that communication between the, the, the main page and the worker, because that's so clumsy right now. It's, it's post message. If you spin up a worker, you get post message, which you can right. send JSON objects at best. We have shared array buffer as well, which is a way you can reinvent all of the buffer overrun problems, it's but on the web. That which right? is great. Yeah. I've been working on things to make it easier, which one of the things is comlink. But I think there's lots of explorations to do. And it's definitely worth doing, because it would just make the web feel good by default. And I think that would be really nice. Less jank is a good thing. That is a good thing. <laughs> And we're done! <laughs>